0: Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball campus in Los Angeles. It is my great pleasure to welcome Professor Mark Wachowski, the Solomon B. Freehoff Professor of Jewish Law at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks, Josh. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Jewish law, which you teach at Mm -hmm. our institution, the Hebrew Union College. And I have to start by asking the question that comes from our shared reform context. Mm -hmm. What's the place of Jewish law in the very movement that most challenged
1: the authority of Jewish law in the first place, the Reform movement. When someone once asked me, what do you do, what do you teach? And I said, well, I teach Talmud and Jewish law at a Reform rabbinical school. They said, well, you you must feel like the late Rodney Dangerfield. (laughs) You know, how does anybody respect what you're doing? Part of my job, of course, is purely academic to teach the material, because rabbis have always studied this material. But an even more important part of my job is to explain why it's important. It's important because without Jewish law, there would be no Jewish action. If we think of Judaism as a religious tradition that expresses itself in the form of actions, things we do, ways that we express our consciousness of being part of a covenant with God or however we understand that theological piece, then the actions we have always taken have been brought to us and constructed for us through a process that we call halacha. Okay, I, I get that. I'm a medieval mm-hmm.
0: historian that resonates with me perfectly. Mm-hmm. But when I go to reform synagogues around the country today, as I do, mm-hmm. I find that the action part of being a member of a reformed Jew, uh, Jewish congregation is fundamentally a set of actions that have no uniquely Jewish source. They have Jewish sources, Mm -hmm. but they also have civic sources, or even Christian sources. I mean, there's the whole social action movement. So much of what we see out there as practiced Reform Judaism is not derived from halakha or, more speciously, is derived from broader social trends and then ex post facto Mm -hmm. attributed to halakha.
1: Yes, that's the way it looks, and that's probably the way it feels to a lot of people. Uh, partly because I think the message that our institutions have been sending them over the generations has been the halakha really has nothing to do with us, that we do derive our inspiration from all these other sources, society in general, the Enlightenment culture in which Reform Judaism was created and so forth and so on. To which I respond, that may be the way it looks But think carefully about what it is we do when we're actually doing recognizably Jewish things. We come together for religious services that are structured in some sort of liturgical pattern. We have a set, fixed prayer rite, and our prayer books, despite the fact that they're quite innovative and they give us all kinds of options, are structured in a particular way. We recite the Shema, we say something called a Tefillah, we read the Torah, we say Aleinu in Kaddish. Those parts of the prayer service are structured and defined for us in the literature of the Halakha. That's where we get them. We're there on Shabbat. We observe a day of rest while we differ greatly with other Jews in how Shabbat is constructed, particularly about how we define this work that we are not supposed to do. The fact is that the rituals with which we welcome Shabbat, lighting candles, kiddush, a nice meal, habdalah at the end. These rituals are brought to us in the halachic literature. There's nowhere else that we find them. So you're 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 mm-hmm. illustrating to us a
0: context which is indeed uniquely, anciently, and demonstrably Jewish,
1: and it comes from the halacha, from responsa, Talmud. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's where those books, those sources, are where you go for information about any of these ceremonies, any of these rituals, any of these ways of expression. The same is true of the festival observances like Pesach, the Seder is a Halachic legal institution. Hanukkah is a rabbinically created holiday. The mitzvah of Hanukkah is brought to us in the Talmud. The ceremonies, birth, weddings, death, and so those are all ceremonies that are defined for us in the Halachic literature and tradition. And the way we relate to the outside world, we, we talk about ourselves as Reformed Jews very much in terms of social action, tikkun olam, all the things we do to make the world a better place. We would think that that's part of the universalism of Reformed Judaism. That is, that to be a good person, to do justice, to love mercy, all of those things is, is not a particularly Jewish thing, because those are values that are shared by all cultures. But it surprises people sometimes when they realize that there is a Jewish approach to many of the issues that fall in the social category. There are discussions of these issues in Jewish sources. There are Jewish ways of thinking about these things. What about authority? No
0: reformed Jewish discussion can proceed without thinking about the nature of authority, religious authority and legal authority. The responsum is a specific mode of literature. Letters Mm -hmm. written by individuals or rabbis to distant rabbis who were esteemed because of their knowledge or prestige. And upon submitting such letters, the key here is that one also submitted to the authority of the rabbi who would respond. The reform movement doesn't subscribe to that kind of authority.
1: Mm -hmm. So what's the role of responsa? The authority of a responsum, a single teshuva, even in the Middle Ages, really depended on the willingness of the community to accept it because the rabbi who authored the responsum was not the rabbi of that community. It's quite likely you would follow that opinion because what you're doing is saying, I personally am incapable of answering this question. But we have lots and lots of examples of rabbis who submit responsa to other questions, to other rabbis, and when the responsa come back, the Shoel, the rabbi who asked the question, said, well, yeah, but what about this, what about that? These were hard questions. Authority was really rooted in the willingness of the community to say, we wish to abide by Torah and Jewish law, but we don't know the Torah, Jewish law answer to this particular question, or there seems to be more than, maybe we can find more than one plausible answer to this question, so help us with this. So the rabbi sends the responsum back is going to come up with an answer but the more important part of it is the argument. It all depended ultimately upon persuasion and argument because other rabbis of course did not have to accept the argument. The responsa literature is really the literary embodiment of this ongoing argument which is Torah because the only way we know what the message of these ancient and medieval texts might be for contemporary times is through a process of reading them, interpreting them, arguing them. Now, how do Reform Jews plug into this? No, we don't have religious authority, or I suppose we have religious authority, it's whatever the community decides. So ultimately, yes, for us too, the the authority rests in the willingness of the community to come up with a decision and to stick with it and to say this is the way we are going to operate. If what they're interested in is a reasoned argument that one decision is better than another or this is the way we should read and interpret our sources as opposed to that way, then the reform responsum is doing exactly what the traditional responsum literature has always done. It builds Torah through the process of argument and if the community looks at this argument and is persuaded by it if the reader or readers say yes that's that's right we recognize our own judaism in the words of this text then the likelihood is greater that they will coalesce around that answer form a community around that answer and say this defines who we are what kind of what, what kind of judaism is our judaism so the relevance of responsa from previous periods of jewish history
0: and today in the reform world is that the notion of authority is perhaps less binding than the way I described it, and so that the jump to the modern world and the reform movement where the authority is even more attenuated isn't necessarily an unbridgeable gap. So tell me, your response uh,
1: are public documents, meaning that they tend to go to communities, is that correct? Usually the question's... Submitted to the responsa committee of the CCAR are questions normally submitted by members of the CCAR, so rabbis. But anyone can send in a question. We publish these answers, we put them on, you know, they're on the web, and we publish them in books, and they're available to a wide readership beyond that individual or community. And
0: indeed, we have the collection of Solomon B. Freehoff's
1: responsa. Was Frihoff controversial? Absolutely. From everything I know and from everything I have heard, there was some bemusement, we might say. Why is he doing this? He, he's quoting all of these strange-sounding rabbinical books that we tend not to read, and uh, he's channeling arguments and debates that are not debates that we usually have for purpose of answering questions that people submit to him when these answers are not binding on anybody, including the person who asked the question, because the individual might just say, I want this information without necessarily saying,
0: you know, right. I'll do what you say." to authority.
1: So why is he doing this? And that was, a, that, that was a, a question that, from the beginning of my career as a rabbi, when, when I was a student and I was fascinated by this literature, Uh, a number of my own teachers would say the same thing. They'd say, well, Freehoff is doing all of this, but he's never solved that problem of authority. This is in the middle of the 20th century, by (laughs) the way. The middle of the 20th century, right. He he was chair of the responsa committee for many, many decades, uh, beginning in the 50s and then ending in 1975. Freehoff simply wrote responsa when people asked questions. It's authority because it's authoritative, not because it needs to impose the authority. That's right. You know, there are over 1,300 uh, published responsa uh, in the reform collection, including Freehoff's and including things the committee has done since his time. And that makes, by far, the largest single body of Reform Jewish writing and publishing on questions of Jewish practice and observance. So tell us a particularly
0: thorny responsum that you had to write or which you wrote in committee that
1: captures some of the spirit. Mm. Uh, We were asked as a committee, uh, an individual says, my my siblings and I have a very serious problem. Uh, Our father is dying and he is asked to be cremated. All of us have religious, Jewish religious scruples against cremation. Must we agree to our father's demand? That left the committee with the job of trying to balance between various mitzvot, such as the mitzvah of honoring your parents' wishes and the mitzvah of burial, which everybody knows, and quotes around those two words, can only be performed with an intact body and and therefore cremation is prohibited. So we start going through the literature having to do with cremation, both the general literature and the halakhic tradition as well as what reform halacha has produced in the last two centuries. And what you discover is that the prohibition against cremation is not all that clear. The Bible, the Talmud, even the medieval Jewish writings don't really talk about it much. Now that could be because People just weren't cremated in Jewish contexts, and so the question didn't come up. It doesn't seem to have come up uh, in in, uh, in with much intensity until the 19th century. But never do you find a clear prohibition of cremation as a means of disposing of human remains. So there's a mitzvah of burial, but how that is to be performed? Do you bury? Must you bury the body intact, or may you bury them? May you bury the body in the form of ashes? Is not is not determined by the older sources. It's the rabbis of the 19th century, the orthodox rabbis of, of that time, decided to draw the line here and say, this is not the Jewish way. And so these rabbis argue that there is an actual prohibition so that when the reform movement in the late 19th century began to determine its attitude toward cremation, it could legitimately say, you know what, this is something that may not be prohibited in Jewish tradition. In any way, we're modern. We don't feel that these traditional books have absolute authority on us anyway. So even if they did say no, we could say yes. But they don't really say no, at least not clearly. So therefore, we don't have a problem with cremation. Cremation was never recommended officially by the Reform, Rabbinical, or other institutions. But it was permitted. In the 1961 Rabbi's Manual published by the CCAR, there's a service for cremation, you know, that uh, or a prayer to be recited at a cremation to indicate just how accepted the process had become by then. But then it, as you as you work towards the present, you see that reform literature begins to take a turn, that in response to the Holocaust, you see a turn away, at least in the official literature, from cremation. There becomes slowly haltingly but nonetheless you can you can see it in the nineteen seventies eighties and nineties you can see books being written official reformed jewish publications recommending that burial in the ground intact burial is the way jews ought to go although we're not going to prohibit cremation that leaves the reformed jew today and this family that asked the question if cremation is not absolutely prohibited you would think the the duty to honor our parents wishes takes precedence but wait just a second (laughs) As liberal Jews, we also say that we as individuals have the right to fulfill our own religious ideas and our own understandings about Torah. So since there was no absolutely right or wrong Jewish answer in this case, we came up with the answer that, look, if you have not promised your parent yet, then you have every right to make your own decision. If you have made a promise, then the duty of fulfilling your promise obviously takes precedence. But nothing contravenes the promise, right. so, it, so there's no I reason mean, why you know, break I it. I mean, you can't promise somebody, "Yes, Dad, I'll go out and rob a bank for you," because robbing a bank is forbidden. But cremation is not forbidden, really. Uh, and so, therefore, here's a reform context in which we allow the individual to weigh all these values and all these things and come up with a deci- decision to make that makes sense. For for them within their own family context. That's
0: a very compelling example and particularly because it's so personal, but there are major social changes in which the reform movement has been at the utter forefront. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through uh, some of the social upheavals in which the Responsive Committee was part of the process?
1: Well, the most obvious example would be uh, gay and lesbian issues. How do Gays and lesbians and now transgender people fit into Jewish religious life, which is a particularly controversial case since uh, opinions and understandings have changed rapidly and sharply over the past several decades. As late as 1990, the CCAR officially adopted a committee report. It was called Homosexuality and the Rabbinate. This is a, a resolution of the conference, not the Responsive Committee, but as part of this uh, this resolution, the uh, the conference stated that, you know, while we have no problem with the ordination of homosexual people as rabbis, we do want to say that monogamous heterosexual marriage is still the Jewish ideal. Things have changed rapidly since then. Now, the question came before the response committee in 1996, and in a very deeply divided committee, the uh, the majority said we're not ready for this. We We have trouble defining the institution of Jewish marriage in such a way that it could cover a union between two individuals of the same gender, or the same sex, although we are perfectly ready to recognize these these individuals and their households as households within our community. Within very short order though, the conference as a whole accepted gay and lesbian marriage and rabbinically supervised ceremonies that uh, celebrated the formations of these unions. Again, not necessarily calling them marriage yet because we were still waiting for governments to recognize same-sex unions as marriage. Would one have necessarily been dependent upon that eventuality or could you have
0: described the event as kitushin, the the Jewish Mm -hmm. uh, institution of, of the contractual relationship
1: that we call marriage? Regardless. Well, here's a case where socially and culturally when you are ready to accept a particular union as a form of marriage then your way to recognize it as Jewish marriage is open. What was bothering the Responsive Committee in the 1990s was whether these unions are actually marriage or something else and in which case if we can't call them marriage and not ready to do that yet the term Kirushin Is it's kind of locked up in the bar and it can't get out yet. When we as a community, as a society, start to recognize these relationships as marriage, that is a form of marriage, different, but yes, marriage, um, certainly in the sense they have a family resemblance to what we've always been calling marriage, so why don't we simply say they're marriage? At that point, the committee was able to call upon other resources, the reform movement, all the way back in the 19th century, recognized Kiddushin, uh, was able to call egalitarian marriage, that is, man and woman equal, each one giving the ring to the other and saying, you are consecrated to me, atamikudashli, the woman says, just like the the man traditionally says, kudeshli, you are betrothed to me. We had already recognized a very different form of marriage as Kiddushin. But because we could recognize egalitarian marriage as marriage, we were very comfortable in calling that kiddushin, and we'd been doing that for well over a hundred years in the reform movement. And so now we are able to take that term kiddushin, as we understand it in the reform context, when we clearly regard same-sex unions as just a form of marriage, and say, okay, you know, that's kiddushin. It takes a while sometimes for uh, the law in general, and halakha in particular, to uh, respond to changes in public perception. And one could argue that that's one of the mm-hmm. purposes of law, which is to put some of the brakes on, to that's right. uh, open up a deliberative space. That's right. There are other ways of being revolutionary, I and mean, law is not necessarily one of them. Law it tends to play a stabilizing force in community life, and it changes when it has to, but it also changes when we're ready for it. And this may be a stabilizing presence, particularly in our movement, which
0: maybe needs the breaks sometimes Mm -hmm. because we do rush to greet the future, largely to our merit, Mm -hmm. but um, it might be healthy.
1: If If the goal of Reformed Judaism is to be innovative, creative, revolutionary, always at the cutting edge and the forefront of everything happening in society, well, that's fine. But there's another goal of Reformed Judaism, and that is that we should be Jewish. And I don't think we believe that Jewish is to be defined as anything that the group of Jews gathered in a particular convention at a particular time happened to vote on. I think we believe that Jewish the Jewishness of any kind of behavior or action a way of expressing ourselves is determined by its connection to what Jews have done in the past that that we do see ourselves as a chain linking back to Sinai. The concept of authenticity comes in here, and I realize that those are fighting words, because uh, who are you to tell me that I'm not authentic? Well, no, no one can tell anybody they're not authentic, but we all seem to resonate with that concept. We want to say that what we're doing really expresses Jewish principles, Jewish tradition, Jewish ideas. Well, okay, that means you gotta make the connection. You know, if if you say we're rooted in Torah and tradition, all right, fine. Show Show us the roots. Show us where it is. And the action of doing that sometimes is a restraining factor. It certainly takes up some time before we can go out there and do the revolution. We have to do our spade work. We have to dig in the ground and find our roots. But we need to do that to keep from floating away, in a sense. We need to do that in order to establish our Jewish street cred. More than credit, the core
0: supposition here. It's not that we risk floating away, but that as we reach taller, we are in fact more revolutionary and more empowered because of the depth of our roots. Mm -hmm. That line of nourishment uh, correlates how
1: far we can reach to how back we can reach. You know, all modern Judaism, I'm talking about not only us, but but people to our right, the conservatives, and even the modern orthodox, with all the things they disagree about, seem to revolve around this notion that we can be modern and Jewish at the same time, that we can be part and parcel yeah. of a society right. that is clearly not ancient, not medieval, that partakes of a liberal culture that enthrones individual rights, freedom of choice, and all of that. We can say yes to that culture, yeah, to have some extent, cake and eat it too, yes, we can right. do this. There's a spectrum. Right. And we're emphasis. In yes, yeah. right, we're on different parts of the spectrum, but we all have to figure out how to make that balance, and we do it because we realize we have to have our cake and eat it too. As impossible as that sounds, we, we have to be able to make the Jewish argument for what we do. People who deal with Reform Halakha are people who try to tend that part of the garden. And so hopefully the literature we produce will be of use and assistance and guidance to everybody else. while they're It, it no already is, I think we can say. And here's to having our cake and eating it, too. I can't think of a better way to have not Bon
0: appétit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, bon Mark Wyszowski for joining us. It's okay. been a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.